I don't know whether you spotted the song words that we sang a couple of songs ago. Um, they read, uh, speaking of Jesus, lifted up. He defeated the grave, raised uh, to life. We were singing there of, of Christ's resurrection, being raised uh, from the tomb. Today is Sunday. Every Sunday is an anniversary of that. It's a celebration of Christ being raised from the dead. And as we move uh, towards Easter, perhaps those words help focus our minds on the death and resurrection. The heart of the gospel. The song words say he defeated the grave. Not only did Jesus defeat death, but he took the penalty, the punishment for sin, for our rebellion against God. If you can grab hold of a Bible, uh, that's going to help you tonight. If uh, there aren't enough, there's a big church out there. There's a few Bibles lurking around if someone wants to go on a little uh, dash round and pick some up. Uh, when you've got a Bible, if you could turn to 2 Corinthians and chapter 5. And I'm just going to read verse 21. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So that verse reads, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know if that verse hits you, but it's speaking of the beautiful exchange that's at the heart of the Christian faith. Christ's death in our place, dealing with our sin, in all order that we might become the righteousness of God. God declares that those who trust in Jesus no, are no longer under his punishment. But it doesn't end there. When God looks on us as believers, he doesn't see us and our sin. He doesn't see us dressed in filthy rags. He sees Christ. He sees his son. He sees us dressed in royal robes. He sees us as the one whom he said, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. If you're a believer here this evening, then that's true of you. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's the beautiful exchange of the cross. Christ taking our place and us being clothed with Christ's righteousness. A prominent uh, church minister, evangelical church minister in the last century, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, said this. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this. That some people might misunderstand and misinterpret it to mean this. That because you are saved by grace the free gift of God. It does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like. If we've understood the beautiful exchange, then we might find ourselves thinking that. Thinking we can carry on and do whatever we want. The Apostle Paul 
uh, recognises this train of thinking. And in, at the beginning of Romans 6, he says, what should we do then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound more and more? And his answer is, by no means. By no means. You see, left to our own devices, we would never be able to respond positively to what Christ did. God has to work in our hearts first. He has to turn our natural hearts of stone, cold and hard, into hearts of flesh that are warm and receptive to Christ. And the results of this are that we come to faith in Christ. And it means that our life moves away from sin. It doesn't mean that immediately we suddenly start living a perfect life. But it means we live a life that becomes more and more obedient to Christ, to God's word. A life that becomes ever more like Christ's. And our series at this service over the last couple of weeks has been looking at aspects of the Christian life in the light of the fruit of the Spirit. If you like the character traits of someone who is living a life obedient to Christ. And we've looked at aspects such as money, forgiveness, self-control, friendship and use of time. And tonight we're looking at the issue of anger. I just want to say here at this point that I'm not going to be dealing with whether it's right or wrong to be angry with God. But rather our anger towards other people and our anger as it might be expressed as a community. So as we turn to look at this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the Bible. We thank you that in it we find you revealing yourself through Jesus. I pray that as we look at your word tonight, you might be at work through your Holy Spirit, changing our hearts and making us to be more like Christ. Amen. So I want to ask you a question tonight. Are you a stewer or a spewer? Are you a stewer or a spewer? When it comes to anger... I think all of us fit into one of those two categories. We're either a stewer or a spewer. Now, a stewer is someone you might not suspect of having any problems with anger. But when they're frustrated or criticised or threatened, they appear not to get angry. But if you were able to look under the surface, you would find someone who is smouldering away. Anger simmering They've learned how to control the external expressions of anger, but inside there's the spectrum of feelings. Annoyance, displeasure, hostility, rage, fury, vengeance. You might find them all there. That might not be you. You might be a spewer. Now, a spewer is someone who, if they are angry, everybody else around knows about it. Words are chucked about. Objects can be chucked about. People might be hit. Walls might be hit. In the heat of the moment, control is lost. Now, I wonder if you recognise yourself in either of the two descriptions. Thinking about it this week, I 
I've come to the conclusion that I'm a, I'm a steward. I can look calm and patient, but underneath, I can be getting really, really wound up. And my anger can build up. So we might express our anger in two different ways. But in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, we find that there are two different types of anger. Two different types of anger. So if you can take your Bible again and turn to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 29. It's Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 29. And the verse reads, A patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. Now, the two different types of anger may not be completely obvious to you there. The NIV translation, which uh, is the Purple Church's uh, translation, uh, it says, a patient man. If you were to look at it as a sort of more literal translation, it would read, one who is long to anger. One who is long to anger. In other words, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Do you see there that Proverbs is not contrasting someone who's got no anger with someone who has anger? Both people, both the person with great understanding and both the foolish person are angry. The difference is the wise person is slow to anger and the fool is quick-tempered. For the wise person has God-centred anger, the foolish person has self-centred anger. And what I want to do this evening is have a look at both of those. And what I pray is that as we do so, we would see how Christ's work on the cross frees us from self-centred anger and leads us to God-centred anger. And that's where I want to begin with God-centred anger. God-centred anger. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 34, Moses meets with God on a mountain. And Moses asks God to reveal his glory to him. And God does that. He passes by proclaiming that he is the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. One of the characteristics of God is anger, slow to anger. You might think to yourself, but but God's a God of love, not a God of anger. God is a loving God, but he's also an angry God. He's slow to anger, but angry all the same. And he's angry because of his love. Anger is an expression of love when something or someone that you love is under attack. Anger is an expression of love when something or someone you love is under attack. And God looks at his creation and he sees it infected with sin. God is angry at sin. He's angry at how it destroys lives, destroys relationships. The way it sets us up in full rebellion against him. It sets our hearts against God. And God is rightly angry at this. 
As we get to the New Testament and the person of Christ, we see that he too gets angry. So if you turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 to 5. So Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And I wonder if we've got someone who'd be willing to read that for us. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. We find ourselves in a section of Mark's Gospel uh, of five different episodes where Jesus is getting into trouble with the religious authorities. He's been getting quite a reputation. The religious authorities see him as a blasphemer because he has claimed that he can forgive sins. They see him as a troublemaker because he hangs around with sinners and tax collectors. They see him as a lawbreaker because he does not keep the Sabbath. And in this episode, we find Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the scene is set. There's a man there with a shriveled hand. Now, Jesus has already driven out an evil spirit on the Sabbath. He's already healed a paralysed man. And he's already broken the Sabbath. But the question is, will Jesus heal on the Sabbath? The Pharisees are there and they're watching. And we need to understand that the Pharisees were waiting for God to send his Messiah, his rescuer, to rescue them from the rule of the Romans. But God had not acted yet. In their thinking, why had God not acted yet? Because they were not good enough for God to have sent his rescuer. So the Pharisees wanted to keep the law to the letter, to become better and better so that God would send his Messiah. And so what they did is they set up more and more rules around God's law to prevent them ever risking breaking the law. And now the Sabbath was hugely important to the Jews and the law did not permit anyone to work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had came up with a huge number of rules to prevent them ever working on the Sabbath. And as we arrive at verse 2, we're told that the religious leaders could see the man with the shriveled hand, they could see Jesus. What was he going to do? Would he do it? Would he heal him? On the Sabbath, would he work on the Sabbath? If he did... That would be a great excuse. He's a lawbreaker. They can discredit him. They can get rid of this guy who's causing all their problems. But suddenly Jesus calls up the man with the shriveled arm, up to the front. And he looks straight at the Pharisees. You can almost imagine it. And and almost saying, you are the experts in the law. 
He asks them this question, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? And Jesus' question, what does it do? It stuns them into silence. You see, God's law did permit, if necessary, to save a life on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had taken their obsession with God's law so far that it started to become more important than the needs of the people around them. So for the Pharisees, the logical conclusion in this episode was for the man not to have been healed. To have done evil. Because ceremonial obedience to the law was more important than doing what was good. They'd missed the point of the law. And what's Jesus' reaction to this? If you look at verse 5, we find out. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus was angry. But the key question, the pivotal question we need to ask is, why? Why was Jesus angry? Well, Jesus' anger was born out of love. He was deeply distressed. In other words, he was grieving because of the stubborn hearts of the Pharisees. He was angry because he could see the state of their hearts, their hard hearts. Instead of recognising their need for a rescuer, they were trying to earn their way to God. Jesus was angry because God was not being honoured. And the Pharisees' hearts were far from him. And that's God-centred anger. That is God-centred anger. One commentator has described it, uh, God-centred anger, as hating the things that God hates for the reasons God hates them. Hating the things that God hates for the reason God hates them. The thing is, self-centred anger looks very different. Let's look at self-centred anger. I want you to take a moment and... Think, and properly think, not just you know, when their preacher says, think about the last time this happened and you kind of casually think about it. I want you to really think about it. The last time you got angry. The last time you got angry. You might have found yourself stewing away or blowing your top. The last time you were angry. And I'll ask you, where were you? Where were you when you were angry? Were you uh, at home? Or at work? In the car? Were you angry with someone else? A work colleague, your boss, a teacher, a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, a friend or a total stranger? Who were you angry at? Or perhaps you weren't angry at someone, but at something. Something that wasn't working when you wanted it to work. Something that you hurt yourself on. Or something that didn't work out the way you wanted it to. It's the last time you got angry. 
And I want you to ask the key question, the pivotal question. You know what's coming? Why were you angry? Why? What was the reason for your anger? What was the motivation behind your anger? And sadly, we're rarely angry at the things that God hates for the reason God hates them. Rarely is our anger God-centred. That's not to say it never is. At times we might be rightly angered at the brokenness of the world. We might be rightly angered at sin, at immorality. Angry at torture, child trafficking, pornography, prostitution, genocide, greed, adultery, murder, poverty. But our anger, on the whole, more often than not, happens to be because we feel our rights have been violated, our preferences have been ignored, and our desires have been walked all over. Remember earlier I said, anger is an expression of love when something or someone you love is under attack. Anger is an expression of love when something or someone you love is under attack. Just as God's anger reveals his love towards us, so our anger reveals what we love. Our anger reveals what we love. You see, in our brokenness, our natural tendency is not to find our identity, our self-worth, our significance in God, but in other things. Instead of finding it in the creator, we find it in created things. We take good things, family, work, success, relationships, respect, money, and, as Tim Keller has put it, turn them into ultimate things. We take good things and we turn them into the ultimate thing. The thing is, when those things are threatened, when there's a risk of them being attacked and taken away from us, what's our reaction going to be? It's going to be anger. In the book of Proverbs, this kind of anger, self-centred anger, is a characteristic of the foolish person. Proverbs 12 verse 16 says, A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Proverbs 29 verse 11 reads, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Do you see that? Self-centred anger is a characteristic of the foolish person. And it's a dangerous thing. It can have a harmful effect on us physically. Scientific studies have shown a probable link between heart disease and anger. The more angry you are, the more likely you are to have heart problems. Proverbs 14, verses 29 and 30 say, A patient man has great understanding, but a quick-tempered man displays folly. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. It has a harmful effect on us physically. It can damage our relationships. It can damage relationships. Proverbs 15 verse 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man, man calms a quarrel. Proverbs 30 verse 33 says, For as churning the milk produces butter, and twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger 
produces strife. Anger divides communities. It can alienate people. And it can create a culture of resentment. Anger can, have an, uh, can harm our ability to make good decisions. Proverbs 14, verse 17 says, A quick-tempered man does foolish things. How many of us, after we've been angry, look back on that and think, I feel like such an idiot. I feel like such a fool for getting angry. And Proverbs said, you feel foolish because you were a fool. I was talking about this with Emily earlier this afternoon and she reminded me of a little episode we had in Morrison's a few weeks ago. We'd gone in, and I don't know if you've been there recently in Gampson, they've done it all up, and it's all different, all change, and very fancy and snazzy. Uh, and we were walking in, into the veg area, um, and Emily said, oh look, there's a salad bar here now. To which I replied, there's always been a salad bar there. This is where I've gone for my lunch for quite a long time. She says, no it's not, it's a new one. I go, no it's not, it's always been there. You get the picture. We then go round Morrison's in a rather awkward state, not really doing well on the communications, a few grunts. You know, there's annoyance on both sides going on. And I find myself uh, getting to the checkout and saying, I'm sorry about the salad bar. (laughs) I felt so foolish for being annoyed, for being angry. Why did I feel foolish? Because I had been a fool. I was getting significance and worth from being right. Do you see that? My significance and worth is coming from being right and that's not a good thing. That's the foolishness of it. It's a new light to me, I know. know. In Proverbs, God-centred anger or slow anger is the ideal. Better than someone who can conquer a whole city is someone who is slow to anger. And it's the anger of a wise person. So how do we stop being fools and how do we become wise? How do we get wisdom? Well, Proverbs describes wisdom as being more than just intelligence. It describes it as being more than just knowledge. Its root is in relationship, relationship with God. Many of you will know Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom begins with a right relationship with God. Wisdom begins with knowing God. So to transform our self-centred anger into God-centred anger, we we need to get wisdom. To transform our self-centred anger to God-centred anger, we need to come to the Gospel the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because that is where our relationship with God is made right, is restored. Only through Jesus can we know God. And as we look further, we see that on the cross, the penalty for sin was taken by Jesus. The ridiculousness of our sin is that we are people, at one point in history, On one planet in the universe, shaking our fists at the immense eternal creator. It's ridiculous. And God is rightly angry at our rebellion. And as we look towards Easter, 
we see how God dealt with his anger. He came himself to earth, lived the life of a man, took the punishment on the cross that we deserved. See, God in his anger deals with sin and he rescues the sinner. He deals with the sin and rescues the sinner. Now that should just melt your heart. He deals with the sin and rescues the sinner. But I want us to end with a few principles to help us in the heat of the moment. Some principles in the heat of the moment. Admit when you're angry. Admit it. Say, I'm angry. Because you're admitting that you might be wrong. You might potentially be in the wrong for being angry. And on the the spectrum of the kind of anger, the spectrum of angry feelings, you might be just feeling frustrated. Or you might be on the other end and flying in sort of full fury. But admit your anger. Because it will lead you to ask the question, why am I angry? Admit your anger. Ask yourself, why am I angry? What's, what is it about what's happened that's made me angry? And if asking that question reveals that our satisfaction is not coming from God, but from something else, it's a realisation that we need to come back to the gospel. We need to pray it through. We need to go and find our Christian brothers and sisters and talk to them and ask them about it. Christian brothers and sisters who will bring us back to the gospel. And by doing so, we will humble ourselves before God. Humbling ourselves before God. For what we see at the cross is God's love for us, which moved him in anger to deal and destroy sin. To deal with and destroy sin and its consequences. God's love saw him pay a great cost to rescue people like you and people like me from a righteous anger that we brought on ourselves. And it sets us free. It sets us free to be able to forgive when we have been wronged. Instead of getting angry, to forgive. And it sets us free to be angry at sin and the brokenness of the world. To grieve how sin has hold of people's lives. It frees us to have God-centred anger. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you fully aware that in our anger we are often self-centred. We get angry because we feel, feel we have been so wronged. I pray in the, the heat of the moment when we feel 
anger bubbling away or pouring forth, that we would turn to you and look at the cross. To see how Christ took the anger from you that we deserve upon himself. That we might be free. And Lord, I pray that this week you would stir up our hearts with God-centred anger. Anger at sin in our own life. Grieving sin at work in the life of those we love. And angry at the broken state of the world. And might that lead us into action and lead us to proclaim the good news of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.